The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com. We're coming on the air right now with breaking news from the Middle East. Hamas has just released 13 Israeli hostages, including two Israeli Americans. They have agreed to a two-day extension. This is coming from the Qatari Minister of Foreign Affairs. I'm your host, Rosalind Matheson. Today on The Big Take, Bloomberg's Israel Bureau Chief Ethan Bronner and journalist Fadwa Hodali join me for an update on the Israel-Hamas war, including the temporary truce, the release of hostages and prisoners, and what the international community thinks about the conflict almost two months on. Ethan and Fagwa, thank you for joining me for this conversation. It comes almost eight weeks into the war between Israel and Hamas, and of course, with a short-lived truce coming into effect. Ethan, could you just bring our listeners up to date in terms of what's been happening in the past few days? The Americans, the Egyptians, and the Qataris organized a truce between Israel and Hamas last week, which originally was to last for four days, and there was to be an exchange of hostages that had been taken by Hamas into Gaza for Palestinian prisoners that Israel holds. In all cases, these are women, children, and elderly people. There were no men involved in this deal. And part of the deal also included a huge increase in the number of aid trucks coming in to Gaza where people are beginning to suffer from hunger and disease after, as you said, nearly eight weeks of war. It was obviously a very, really delicate deal to get done, as you say, involving mediation between Qatar officials from the US, Egypt, essentially passing notes between Hamas and Israel in very fraught circumstances. Was it surprising to you, Ethan, that the truce actually has held throughout? It does seem like it's been largely respected. There was many, many reasons to imagine that it would fall apart. But I guess what's driving it is that both sides are desperate for a deal, as are the sponsors. So Israel is desperate for a deal because it really wants to bring back its hostages, at least as many as it can. There has developed in Israel an exceptional campaign of pressure to put the hostages at the front of the agenda ahead of victory, and also to assert that it doesn't make victory difficult or harder. It's both things are equally important. On Hamas's side, the desire for some kind of a pause that would allow it to reorganize its troops and also bring in some supplies for itself as well as for the people of Gaza also was huge. And for the Americans, who are the major sponsor of Israel internationally, there was a sense that Israel was going about this war in a way that was not sensitive to the needs of civilians, that it was way too many people, ordinary people being killed. And by creating the conditions for this truce, there would be time to rethink its battle plan going forward. So there was a lot of desire on all sides for it. Outside Gaza, Fadwa, we did see some skirmishes continuing. We know that the Voice of Palestine radio station reported that Palestinians were killed 
in a missile attack by Israeli forces on the occupied West Bank. We know there's also reports that Israeli missiles were hitting targets inside Syria. Can you talk a little bit about what's been going on outside Gaza throughout this ceasefire? Outside Gaza, West Bank has been uh, living also tense moments since the aggression on Gaza. Continuous uh, raids by the Israeli Defense Forces. The West Bank uh, has been on a lockdown since October 7th. This has put a lot of strain on the Palestinian movement, Palestinian economy on their daily basis. The West Bank since October 7th have seen an increased number of Palestinians being killed. We're talking about uh, close to 300 people that have been killed since October 7th. That puts a lot of pressure on the Palestinian Authority in regards to uh, what's going on on continuous raid. They are not able to be in areas where the uh, IDF is uh, conducting those raids. Schools have been put onto a course of going into a Zoom and on a lot of places, especially on the north area of the West Bank, like Jenin, Tulkarem, Nablus, and that's where most of the IDF operations are concentrated. And of course, the IDF is the Israeli Defense Force. Fadwak, has the pause in fighting, did that allow us to assess any more clearly the damage or the impact inside Gaza itself of the war? Has it enabled any clearer assessments of what's been the impact inside Gaza so far of this conflict? I think the people in Gaza got a time to breathe. And the assessment is huge. The damage is huge. The amount of destruction that that took place there is huge. So these days of a ceasefire gave people time to go check their homes that they were destroyed, restock on goods. The humanitarian uh, situation is devastating. Most of the hospitals are not working. A couple of hospitals only in the south. Two hospitals in the north are only functioning with severe, severe damage to the uh, infrastructure. And uh, the humanitarian aid is not enough to reach into the Gaza Strip. The UN has been working constantly to kind and provide the facilitation of humanitarian aid to go into most of the Gaza Strip. But as we know that reaching the north is a bit uh, difficult and this requires coordination uh, by the uh, Israeli Defense Forces and the humanitarian aid uh, agencies in there. It was interesting, just in the immediate aftermath of the truce beginning, I remember there were reports that people in Gaza were trying to move back to the north from the south to possibly check on their homes, to check on their loved ones, and we're being very much blocked in that effort and told to stay in the south. But Ethan, I was interested in something you were talking about, which is the motivation on both sides to have this ceasefire, this pause in the fighting, and why it was to the benefit of both Israel but also Hamas. I'm curious, has this break, though, hardened any of the pressure on the Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu from other nations, for example, to now stop the war entirely? There is an enormous amount of international pressure on Israel. The view from abroad is that this is an inexcusable number of civilian casualties and deaths that Israel's uh, rule over Gaza in the past has created the conditions for it ought to be handling the situation far differently. 
At the same time, there is support by the United States for the goal that Israel has set, which is to dismantle Hamas. And it must be said that there appears to be support for that goal in some European capitals and indeed in the Arab Gulf as well. I think the problem is, you know, at what cost and how quickly can they do it? The other thing is it's a rather abstract goal because Hamas is something that was born from within the Palestinian people. It is a religious, political, social, cultural movement. The idea of actually stripping it from the people seems, you know, an ambition that may not be meetable. So there's a lot of pressure to answer your question on the prime minister of Israel and on the Israeli government, but it must be said, there is a huge amount of pressure inside Israel to complete the task as it has been laid out. There is a surprising amount of unity in this country to do what is possible to destroy Hamas. And that's partly because the events of October 7th were so traumatic for this country. And it's interesting to hear you talking, Ethan, about the question of domestic unity, political unity, and we want to talk about that in a bit also. But I want to pick up a point that you made about Hamas being sort of really part of the fabric for many people, Palestinian people, and that question of the goal of eradicating Hamas being the end goal in this conflict for Israel. We know that they've lost a bunch of senior commanders. We know that the airstrikes from Israel have been very widespread and highly damaging. Is there a sense that Hamas has had a chance to regroup in all of this? That is absolutely the sense that Israelis have, that the, the military has. There's concern, of course, that Hamas, it's now based, one assumes, in the tunnels of the southern part of the Gaza Strip. And they may be able to, in fact, run around, escape, bring in uh, some kind of reinforcements and so forth. So yes, the whole idea was that you have to put enormous pressure on them and only then will they yield in any way. So you had these two competing goals for the war, which was to put pressure on Hamas and destroy it and bring back the hostages. They really are not easy to reconcile the two because one kind of obviates the other. But the way the Israelis have handled it is to say, well, actually, the best thing we can do is put enormous pressure on the Hamas leadership to force them to cut a deal on hostages. I'm not sure that's what happened, but that's the narrative that's been presented here. And so we have had this series of hostages getting out. I mean, it also must be said, I think, that from Hamas's point of view, to be holding babies, children, elderly ladies has not been particularly a good look. And so I think they're not that upset about letting some of them go. After the break, how did the world respond to the temporary truce? The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com. We were talking initially about the ceasefire itself between Israel and Hamas, the exchanges of prisoners and what's been the impact of that so far. Let's talk a little bit about some of the other players in all of this because Fadwa, the truce was brokered by Qatar, Egypt and officials in the US. What kind of role particularly did Qatar play in all of this and what does that tell you about sort of the growing place of Qatar in the region? 
As we know, Qatar has been uh, funding the uh, Gaza Strip since the division of the Palestinians. The uh, coup that Hamas has imposed on the Gaza Strip in 2007. Since then, we've seen a growing interest from the Qatari to invest into Gaza and also because of the relationship that they hold with the uh, uh, Hamas leadership. Their Hamas leadership is stationed in Qatar, so that puts them in a closer relationship. Qatar has been funding the Gaza Strip, paying for needy family infrastructure for years. And uh, they've been brokering a couple of uh, ceasefire between Hamas and uh, Israel. So it played really a major role into that. In regards to the Egyptians also, the Egyptians have always all along played a very intensive role in regards to that. Hamas has kept a really good relationship with the Qatari, kept a really good relationship with the uh, uh, Egyptians, and also need to take into consideration that Egypt does not want any unrest into its borders. Also, we need to take into consideration that the uh, Palestinian Authority is in a very close contact with the Egyptians, and they want to make sure that none of the Palestinians that live in, in Gaza, especially in this war, since there were a lot of talks about people being displaced and moved to Egypt, they wanted to make sure that the Egyptians are on the same line as all the Arab countries supporting the Palestinian issue, none of those people to be displaced or be taken out of Gaza. They wanted to make sure none of these people are being transferred and sent across the border from Rafah. And of course, Egypt has been playing a major role in facilitating the aid going into Gaza. So they had to maintain a really good relationship with Hamas uh, in regards to that. And of course, as you say, Egypt's been very clear throughout that it doesn't want an exodus of people out of Gaza through that rougher crossing. And noting, of course, Egypt has an election coming up also in a matter of weeks. But what's been the, the overall reaction by Arab states to the prospect of the war resuming. Again, Ethan was making clear that as far as Israel's concerned, there's a strong desire to see this war through no matter what uh, in terms of temporary truces and whatnot. How are Arab states responding to that? Well, the Arab states are clear and actually joining forces in trying to get a complete halt of the war and get a completely permanent ceasefire. There is an opportunity, a seized opportunity that They believe that this is the time to look into the Palestinian-Israeli conflict and finally solve it once and for all. And after the October 7th, there needs to be a deeper look into the Palestinian cause because this affects also the other Arab countries like Jordan, Syria, Lebanon. So they joined forces and on a daily basis, there are talks, efforts to open up a path where negotiations based on 67 borders uh, resume and ending the Israeli-Palestinian conflict because this also brings in stability to the whole Middle East region. Ethan, one other delicate relationship in this obviously is also involving Iran, which backs not only Hamas but also the Lebanon-based Hezbollah and Houthi rebels based in Yemen who've been keeping up some of their attacks in the region throughout the truce, firing missiles and so on, and that's risking drawing in U.S. forces in the region. Ethan, can you talk a little bit about how this is being seen at the moment by Iran? It does seem as though Hezbollah has been staying largely quiet in attacking Israel 
throughout this process. Is Iran keen to also see tensions de-escalate somewhat? I don't think we have real transparency into the thinking at the highest levels of Iran. There's no doubt that Iran considers Hezbollah and Hamas as useful tools to go after Israel. There is a long-standing and deep shadow war between Iran and Israel. There's a deep ideological divide over it. And Iran, to the best of our understanding, funds Hezbollah by about a billion dollars a year and Hamas by about a hundred million dollars a year. Those missiles that are able to be GPS directed to Tel Aviv from southern Lebanon and from Gaza are paid for by Iran. So there's no doubt that there is a huge focus on Israel from Iran. Now, at this particular moment, it doesn't seem that they are urging Hezbollah to get involved in a big way. It's also possible that Hezbollah is not willing to get involved in a big way. It's hard for us to know what that conversation is like. The Israelis have moved up a large part of their air force to the north and have said to Hezbollah, if you do start raining down thousands of missiles on Israel, we will destroy Beirut. And there are, of course, two U.S.-led carrier groups in the Mediterranean to reinforce that message. So I think that the message has been received. I don't know that that tells us anything about what ultimate intentions are. I think that Israel is very nervous about a group closing in on it from all sides, Syria, Lebanon, West Bank, and Gaza, in the sense that it is Iran behind most of those movements. So I don't think we've seen the end of the situation, Ross. Coming up, what can we expect next in the conflict? The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com. We were talking earlier about the truce itself and the determination of Israel to continue with the war either way, given its goal is to eradicate Hamas and it says its goal is not yet achieved. Ethan, what does it mean that the ceasefire has been extended? What are the ramifications of that extension? Well, baked into the original deal was that after the four-day ceasefire, there was a possibility of another day for H-10 hostages released, again, women, children, and elderly. And so that has now happened. Uh, They've been able to extend it by this period in exchange for these hostages. What does it mean? In theory, it means that there's a greater humanitarian aid coming into Gaza, that the, the likelihood of severe disease and starvation is declined. And then the question is, what does it mean for Israel's assertion that it's going to continue to come after Hamas in the same way it did before? All along, some military planners have said, if you allow a long-term truce, long-term meaning some days or weeks, then the ability of the military to kind of pick up where it left off is reduced. The desire of the nation to move forward could be reduced. And this uh, poses a threat to your ongoing task. Now, we'll see whether the Israelis, in fact, are able to pick up where they left off. There's the other question of, you know, whether abroad the pressure will grow. 
inside the United States, there is concern that that aid to Israel, military aid to Israel, ought to be conditioned on certain kinds of behavior. This is something that has arisen lately. So all of these things are sort of in play as the extension goes forward. And Fadwa, with the decision to extend the ceasefire, you talked earlier in the conversation about the breathing space for the people of Gaza. Obviously, either way, that the humanitarian situation there remains pretty dire. Yes, it is. The humanitarian situation is really devastating. We have over 1.7 million people displaced, people without homes, living in tents. Families have been displaced from each other. We are in the winter time. This is going to put a much more strain onto the people. They're tired of the situation. They want to have some time to go back, relocate to their homes. We've seen footage of people going back in for the last three, four days, living in their destroyed home, uh, taking shelter in there, uh, trying to pick up their belongings. So before the ceasefire ends, they can go back and head down south in the shelter places, whether it's in the schools, whether it's in homes of families, whether it's most of them in tents, you see people living on, in their cars. This is devastating. You'll see lines and lines of people standing to refill water, refill gas, and restock their food. And they don't know if this is going to continue, if the ceasefire will last. Ethan, it was also interesting hearing you talk earlier about the internal dynamic inside Israel, that there were a lot of questions over Netanyahu initially and his long-term future after the surprise attack by Hamas inside Israel on October 7. But it sounds as though there is a sense of unity still inside Israel, both politically and amongst the public. Look, there is definitely unity to the plan to uh, take a very tough response line to what happened on the 7th of October and to send a message both to Hamas and to Hezbollah, to its sponsors in Iran, that this is a country that is going to stand together militarily and from a security perspective as long as necessary. That is true. That does not mean that people are embracing Benjamin Netanyahu's future as prime minister. There was until the 7th of October, nine months of street weekly demonstrations calling for his removal uh, because of issues of uh, of populist policies having to do with the Supreme Court and also uh, cases against him of, of fraud and bribery. There was some problem to begin with. Once this happened, after all, Netanyahu had put himself forward as Mr. Security and on the day of the 7th of October, there was no sign of any security. There was a clearly an enormous failure, and the buck does stop with him. So I would say that when this war ends, it's very unlikely that he will be able to be prime minister for much longer. Uh, all the polls show Benny Gans, the more centrist a member of his war cabinet and opposition leader, as a way out ahead to become the next prime minister. That said, I think we have to remember that what happened on October 7th actually did not drive the country to the center or the left. It drove it to the right to some extent. Abroad, people look at what happened on October 7th and say, well, desperate people do desperate things. Now it's time for you to finally deal with your Palestinian issue inside Israel. 
the view of what happened was, listen, we are dealing with an inherently violent group that wants to kill us no matter what happens, and therefore we need to be more protective, not less. We need to put our army in a stronger position, not weaker, and we are not in any way interested in a two-state solution. That is, I would say, the majority view in this country, not the overwhelming, but the majority view. So the idea that there'll be a sort of peaceful solution when this is all over is hard to see at this stage in this country. It's interesting you talk about that contrast domestically and internationally. We are seeing increasing countries around the world with their concern around the situation inside Gaza and calling for a more prolonged ceasefire to take effect. But Ethan, you say when the war is over and the idea of what happens next, are we still talking months, possibly years for this war itself, Israel to achieve its goal on Hamas? What's the timeline on that? And then what comes after? I don't think it's years. Weeks or months seem to make the most sense at this stage just because the pressure to stop the deaths of innocents is going to grow. And also the question of, as you say, what next will start to impose itself. So what next? Let's say the war goes for two or three more months. So much depends on whether they have successfully killed a number of top people uh, in Hamas, whether they, in the second phase of the war, are able to actually uproot the infrastructure. At the same time, that you have two million people crowded above ground there. It's hard to imagine how that can happen. One of the reasons that there's been all this focus on a ceasefire is because the Americans have been saying to the Israelis, you must have a plan that makes sense going forward. You can't just say, we're going to destroy them. You need to explain to us how you're going to do it. So I don't know that they've come up with a, a very particularly appropriate plan, but we'll have to see what happens next. Domestically, Politically, I think that it all the leaders of everyone involved is likely to change in the coming year. It's not clear to me, as I said, that Prime Minister Netanyahu will be in power. It's not clear to me that Mahmoud Abbas will for very much longer be the president of the Palestinian Authority. It's not clear to me that Yahya Sinwar will be able to be the leader of uh, Hamas in Gaza. And indeed, it's not clear that President Biden will be the president in a year. Fadwa from Jerusalem, also, I'm curious your perspective on what next, not just for Israel, but also for Gaza and for the West Bank. Ethan mentioned Abbas, the head of the Palestinian Authority, whose name has been thrown about a bit as a solution, but there are so many ideas being bandied about and no one seems to have a real solution to what is a very deeply protracted, long-running and challenging problem. But what do you see as the things to watch for next? Well, I think what's next and what the Palestinian Authority is trying to do is to make sure that they are the ones who take control of the Gaza after uh, the war is over. Because actually, they have been in Gaza, even when Hamas is running the Gaza Strip. The PA has been paying a lot of money uh, since the Hamas takeover uh, to Gaza. They've been paying salaries for their civil servants. They've been paying for water. They've been paying for uh, electricity. So the PA already existed, but you can maybe call it like a shadow government that it's been paying for expenses that uh, actually Hamas couldn't pay. Then they believe that 
you cannot leave their your people you cannot differentiate between gaza and the west bank they're all one entity and one people and they trying to make sure with all their diplomatic effort that they're being exerted since the war started that the pa is the only entity and is the only entity that is recognized by the international community the un resolutions is the one that needs to run gaza in regards to that So this is where the efforts also, not only of the Palestinian Authority, but uh, European countries, the uh, Americans have stated their position in regards to that, the uh, Arab countries. So this is where the effort is being exerted, is for the PA to go back and run Gaza. Ethan and Fadwath, thank you very much for your time today. Thank you, Raz. Thank you. Thanks for listening to us here at The Big Take. It's a daily podcast from Bloomberg and iHeartRadio. For more shows from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen. And we'd love to hear from you. Email us questions or comments to bigtake at bloomberg.net. The supervising producer of The Big Take is Vicky Vergolina. Our senior producer is Catherine Fink. Federica Romaniello is our producer. Raphael Amsili is our engineer. Original music by Leo Sidron. I'm Rosalind Matheson. We'll be back tomorrow with another Big Take. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code Radio20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival.